0: Hello, happy Thursday, everyone. Welcome to the Media Gel podcast, where we cover the latest in marketing trends and strategies that are most effective in growing your cannabis dispensary, delivery service, or brand. We help cannabis companies advertise through paid search, SEO, and programmatic advertising here at Media Gel uh, to increase foot traffic awareness and e commerce sales. Uh, I'm your host, Guillermo Bravo, and today we'll be discussing cannabis brand market expansion. I'm super excited to introduce Joe Hodas, who's the CMO of WANA Brands, to today's podcast. Joe serves as the chief marketing officer for WANA, uh, where he's responsible for generating revenue uh, creating by creating innovative and refined marketing campaigns for the organization, as well as uh, helping uh, to grow WANA's brand, market share, and customer loyalty. Joe's been in the business for a long time. Uh, you know, he's been an early professional and marketer in the cannabis industry, you know, working with Dixie Elixirs as his first CMO, you know, helping build that into one of the most recognized national cannabis brands. And uh, welcome to the show, Joe.
1: Thanks, Guillermo. Appreciate it. You know, it's funny. I always feel like when, I, when someone reads bio on me, I'm like, Ugh, I got I to gotta rework that thing. It's too, too long and <laughs> wordy. So I'll, I'll, keep that, I'll keep that note for this time.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, just thinking back to my career in cannabis, uh, you're one of the first people I met, you know, on the marketing front back in like 2014, 2015. So it's Look nice back. to see a familiar face uh, that's been in the game for you know close to eight years now.
1: It's probably I, I would think it was when uh, MJ Biz was still at the Rio that we probably first met in person. So
0: it was a much smaller <laughs> MJ Bizcon at that time. Yeah, indeed, <laughs> indeed. Uh, times and change. Well, you know, h- excited to have you on and uh, you know, share with our audience the uh, different ways that you know they can uh, you know break into new markets.
1: <clears throat> well, thanks. I'm I'm excited to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity. And this is one of the one of the biggest challenges I think that brands have is is figuring this this out. And by the way, no matter what we talk about today, I can tell you it's not totally figured out. So there's no, no <laughs> there is no secret sauce, no perfect model. I can only speak to experiences i've had and what does and doesn't work but uh at some point there there hopefully will be a a uh, a day where we can expand the way that all other brands and all other industries do
0: yeah we just need to be yeah at the same level as everyone else and giving the same shot and you know 280 some of these other cannabis uh related factors like you know crossing state lines and all these other challenges that we have to deal with that other industries don't uh those need to be fixed before you really have a, a shot to compete on a yeah, at the same rate as other you know, industries. Yep, indeed. Uh, you know, I guess on the you know to get things started, you know, how do you know you're truly ready to expand your brand into a new market? Yeah, you
1: know, it's it's a great question, and it's one that I think often doesn't get asked enough or looked at enough, right? Because brands will, I, and I've seen it you know a million times. Like, okay, we got a product, we got a little traction. What's our next market how's our growth you know so people are are looking at brand uh, market expansion as a way to fuel growth which certainly is a strategy and it's not a bad one but um what happens is because of the complexity of this industry when you don't have first of all dedicated resources right critically important you got to have a team that's all they do is they focus on market expansion and want Wana, for example we have really two sides of that we have a team that is focused operationally on that expansion And then I also have a brand expansion team. So they are strictly focused on supporting that market expansion in each new market we go into, and then kind of collectively as a whole, supporting the expansion process. So having the right people in place to do it is one thing. Two, having really strong and clear SOPs that you have not only the SOP, but a way to ensure that your partners adhere to that um, so that when they get the information and you do the training for them, that they, one can follow it, two, that you know, you can make sure that from a QA perspective, they're, they're following what you've asked them to do. Um, and then lastly, that there's never a point at which you have to worry about whether or not there's been a deviation from an SOP because there wasn't information, right? Like So in other words, the SOPs have to be as complete as possible. Um, so really testing those and, and, and making sure that they're pretty foolproof is, is critically important. And then I would say lastly is um, ensure that if you have limited resources, which most brands and most cannabis companies do, right to a certain extent, that you've fully utilized the resources in the existing market you're in before you say, okay, we're going to go to the next market, the next market, the next market. Because every time you do that, you're you're bifurcating each you know those resources, right? So make sure you're you're you know at a point where you're mature enough in a given market that you're ready to take it to the next market.
0: Yeah. I mean, make sure that you're, you know, if you're owning your category, like edibles, right. Uh, make sure you're, make sure you are owning that category in that state and that you've done everything you can to, to get as much market share before you even consider moving on to, to the next Cause then you have to find partners. And there's just a whole nother level of complexity to that. So. Absolutely. <clears throat> can you walk us through, you know, high level bullet points of, you know, what a brand needs to have an order before even considering expanding a new market?
1: Well, I think one thing is, um, and you just said it actually, was partner, right? So okay. so most brands currently, and, and there's there's really two different models primarily. One, you go into a new market, you secure your own license, you secure your own facilities, you manage that entire end-to-end process, which is extremely capital-intensive, intensive rather, and requires hiring people on the ground locally in that market and all those other parts and pieces that um, would maybe potentially slow expansion for some, for some brands, um, or you go more in asset light model, which is what WANA does, and you find a partner. But the challenge with that, of course, is finding the right partner, right? So there's a whole qualification process. And I mean, to, to use a, a, a fairy tale example, you gotta kiss a lot of frogs, right? To you to find that right partner that, um, that can both be aligned with you philosophically, aligned with you culturally, that knows how to produce, that knows um, how to also handle distribution and all the other intricacies of each individual market. So, that's really critically important is, is finding the right partner. Two, make sure you're resourced. You know, I mean, it sounds simple and obvious, right? But um, understand that whatever you think is going to cost you to expand to a new market, double or triple that. I mean, and yeah. if you don't have that, if you don't have that cash aside that's not being funded from your existing operations and you're going month to month, If you don't have that kind of set aside to be able to do the expansion, it's going to be challenging. You're going to run into issues. Um, Three, and I generally don't promote lawyers, but (laughs) you got to have a strong contract. You got to have a legal team that can look at a contract and have, make sure that, Every single question is answered. And, and, you know, honestly, Wanda didn't have that for a long time. We didn't have a, a really, you know, ironclad contract that we had, you know, a lot of legal input into. We've gotten there, but we've gotten there painfully and looking yeah. at the mistakes along the way. Um, but if if you start out with a really strong contract and everyone is clear on the terms and what revenue shares look like and what production responsibilities they have, and everyone's clear on that and it's, and it's written and, and, you know, on, on a contract you're going to end up with a better result and you're going to end up with less situations where you've got finger pointing going on. And one partner says you were supposed to do this and we were supposed to do that. And it doesn't happen. Right. So those are, I think those are some really critical pieces to ensuring that before you go into a market, you're, you're prepared.
0: Yeah. Finding that right partner is key, right? It's you're, you're you're going to battle together. It's not easy in the cannabis industry. We know the challenges that you have to deal with. So it's, you want to make sure that they they're they're ready to to go to you know, go to war with you, and whether it's the legal front and whether it's compliance, marketing, uh, competing uh, for the same mar- for market share you know, like against some of the, some other high well funded companies. Like it's it's not a uh, yeah it's we're not printing money here. It's like you know, we used to see the green rush back in uh, like early twenty to, you know ten years ago, and it's not yeah. as easy as you think. No, gosh, no.
1: no. You actually, you just mentioned something too that kind of, sort of circles back to the lawyer thing, but yeah. um, compliance—making sure that your partner has compliance resources. Because truthfully, um, particularly in in new markets, but even in mature markets, no one's going to know compliance as well as someone on the ground who holds a license, who is you know responsible for that compliance locally. Because things change, and sometimes it's it's a grapevine. Like, hey, I, I heard that you know that they're making a change to the regs, and we have to do X, Y, and Z. If, if you are not on top of that, if your partner is not on top of that, um, you can waste a lot of time, get yourself in trouble, waste a lot of money. So that, that's another piece I should have mentioned. And then I did forget one more thing, which is do your market analysis. Understand what the market is. Because not we like to say here, Eric Block, our, our chief revenue officer, it's his favorite saying, so I'm going to give him credit for it. So when he listens to this, he doesn't give me shit about it, <laughs> is uh, every market is a market. and And it's true. Like, you know, they're each unique and different in terms of what's the consumer demand, what products do well, uh, what distribution looks like. So really understand the market and don't just say, well, I've got a great brand here. I can just drop it in there. It'll be perfect.
0: doesn't work yeah. that way. Yeah. I mean, even like, uh, you know, consumer education, you know, the cannabis curious consumers, East coast is a lot different than West coast. You know, uh, how long has cannabis been around culturally in the, in the different regions? Uh, could be uh, you know political values, like all these different things, have an impact on you know, how they're going to engage with the cannabis brand.
1: And I, I see it from like some of the early markets, California, Colorado, maybe Oregon, where you know we all have this belief, like we're OG, and you know everyone wants our <laughs> brand because it's Colorado or it's California. I think I think I see it more predominantly in California, frankly. Um, but just because it's a California brand doesn't mean it's going to play in New York, no, or Missouri for that matter,
0: yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, as far as a budget, like, what would what is like a rough budget someone would need to even consider an expansion? Is that even?
1: (laughs) I I wouldn't even begin to know how to calculate that because there's so many there's so many factors, right? In terms of, um, you know, what what's the the capex to start up uh, a a facility. what, uh, you know, what kind of, uh, growth projections do you have for your, for yourself? I mean, you know, if, if you're a company that's small and you're looking to get into a new market and you're like, Hey, we're in 10 stores by the end of the year, we're doing great. That's going to require a different budget than let's say, Wana, want to, where we want to be number one in every market we go into. So, you know, and have a really broad expansive footprint. Um, and, and so it, it, you know, it's a really tough question to answer. It's, it's an individual case basis, I think, uh, on the company. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it might be like a percentage of revenue or something, but yeah, who knows? Um, really make that, uh, make that case yourself to the CFO.
1: <laughs> yeah, and hopefully you're doing your analysis and you're saying, okay, well, this is what it's going to cost us. Whether, you know, if you go the, the full model or whether you go the asset light model, hey, there, here, here is what's going to cost us to go into each of these new markets. And some of those, if it's your first market, might be the startup cost of saying, do I have the staff? Do I have the contract and the lawyers, you know, all that stuff in place. So there's, there's kind of that piece, which becomes, you know, you amortize that over each market you go into, but. But then in terms of being in the market, it's, do I have all the displays I need? Do I have all the packaging order? Do I have, you know, all of those parts and pieces that you need to make sure that you have forecasted for. And then, like I said earlier, two or three X that, and then you've got enough cash. Exactly.
0: Make sure you're, yeah. Make sure uh, your bank is full and uh, you're ready uh, for some, unplanned for expenses. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Uh, what are some of the op- obstacles that brands uh, may face when considering an expansion?
1: Well, I think a couple of things. So as a brand, one of the, the biggest obstacles, the most obvious ones is the fact that because regulation is different by market, it's hard to have brand consistency. So you know, our packaging in Florida is black and white. We're not allowed any branding on it. It says Juana, luckily, um, but that's about it. And the, and the gummies had to be formulated differently because we weren't allowed to have color in any of the gummies. And they're not called gummies, by the way, they're called chews in Florida. So, <laughs> so you know, so that that uh, immediately poses challenges from a brand consistency standpoint. Now, you know, not to pat ourselves on the back, but a brand like Juana has decent brand recognition within the cannabis industry. So most consumers that are coming across us aren't like, oh, I've never heard of Juana. What is that? Um, a lot of them have at least heard of us or tried us in different states. So we we have that added benefit. If you're a brand new brand that's never been in market and people aren't familiar with you, it's really challenging to create that brand consistency. Um, so we benefit in the sense that we're in enough states now and we have enough brand recognition that if we're in a Florida where we can't have the branding, it's still, we're still drawing from other experiences in other markets where people understand the brand. Um, but again, if you're brand new, you might not have that. So that's one is just the, the, the straight up packaging branding elements. Two is um, if you're challenged from a, a product standpoint. So whether that's dosing, whether that's dosing, or you know, uh, for example, in uh, most recent changes in Oregon uh, with um, with cannabinoids um, and CBN, for example, you know, if you've got if your lead product is a as a sleep product and you've launched in Oregon and then you got to pull CBN out of that product to be able to sell it in Oregon you create some product inconsistencies and you may, you may damage the effectiveness of a product as well, if you were going to do that. So, um, so that's a, a brand challenge. Um, and I think lastly for, uh, for the asset light model that we do, what we've begun doing now, and, and this is again, learning from experience and pain is we have brand ambassadors. We have field marketing managers in each market uh, so that we can have a little bit more control of the brand the brand voice, because as much as you want your partner to live and breathe your brand and in some markets, we we're, almost there where they're like, they might as well be Wana. It is, it is a challenge to ensure that your brand voice and, and what you represent as a brand is communicated down to the bud tenders and the consumers in those markets. If you're not doing it yourself.
0: Yeah. And you touched on a few things and we, we haven't, uh, you know, brand equity is, is huge, right? And it's something that Wana has established. Like how, how important is this, you know, when you're expanding in new markets and this, does this give you, you know, uh, uh, negotiating power when you're trying to get on just you know dispensary shelves and, and reach decision makers. <clears throat>
1: um, I, absolutely, right. Yeah. Um, and I think what was interesting too, like you know, when you look at the the pandemic and yeah. the the fact that brick and mortar became a little bit more challenging, um, many companies, dispensaries, you know, the buyers as well as the consumers were defaulting to brands they were familiar with. So. Um, if I'm going to spend dollars, you know, and I, and I can't be in a dispensary and I can't talk to a bud tender about it at any length, I'm just going to go to the, the tried and true. And so for us, that was a benefit, right? Because people knew Wana or the, you know, we have certainly enough scale that people um, have the experience with us that they know to go back to Wana because it was consistent in, you know, all the other g- great things we like to say about ourselves. If you're a brand new product, you had a much harder time, both getting on the shelf, the, even the virtual shelf. And also attracting the consumer because you didn't have the ability to, to go through the normal process that you might with bud tender education and down to consumer. And so I think that was a real um, a real challenge. Where and I think that's where brand equity makes a big, big difference. But but I'll, I'll sorry, caveat that by saying if you're in a market and you have a really strong partner who has an existing portfolio, <coughs> excuse me, of products, that obviously can benefit you because it's all about right now, still relationships locally, no matter the size of the market it's always about those local relationships and the buyers and the, and the, and the brand. So if you've got a, a partner that really has those strong relationships, that can certainly benefit you as a new brand.
0: Yeah, what are some you know, tips for people as far as like uh, building their brand and in, in their, in their brand equity? Like what are some of the things that they should prioritize um, to really cement themselves in the industry?
1: Well, I mean, are we talking like from an expansion standpoint or just more broadly? Just-
0: just broadly, you know, like what are, you I know, mean, product consistency is huge, right? Uh, I, I, can, yeah.
1: I can easily answer that. I'll tell you, there's there's really only a handful of things that I think are most critical. One, be, be different, like have something that is unique and special and, you know, focus on innovation, focus on um, bringing something to market that no one else has, or, you know, at the very least, improve on what everyone else has, right? So, do, do something with your product set that is different, that, that draws in the consumer and says, okay, I want that product because it offers me the thing that none of the other products do. Two uh, is ensure quality and consistency, right? Not just, and that's not just of the product. So this is an industry that is rife with products that, you know, because the science isn't fully there. They're still inconsistent at times. Um, and that's on the product side. But when you talk about like everything from, is your, is your sales team you know, respectful to deliver when they say they're going to deliver? Um, is your brand promise fulfilled upon every single touch point with the consumer? All of those things, when I say consistency, are really important for the brand. So it starts with the product, but it also uh, emanates out from there in terms of how you conduct yourself and, and, and what the business is. And I think lastly is, and this is one that I think is really um, interesting in this day and age, which is I think consumers want brands to stand for something. I, I, you know, I don't mean to sound like that's not obvious, but I, but they want brands to stand for something and and to understand what they stand for, and even if it's not a social issue or something of that nature, be clear about who you are and and know that you know the best brands don't necessarily serve all consumers initially, right? They have a perspective and and who they're serving and and who their targets are and what they're trying to do with their products and their brand, and so I think it's important for us. Um, particularly as we grow as an industry to just, you know, make sure if you're a brand that you, you know what you stand for.
0: Yeah. Be authentic. Right.
1: And be sorry. That's part of that is be authentic. Yes.
0: <laughs> so if uh, I'm a brand and I want to break into a new state, I don't have the brand equity uh, that one has like, how do I get in front of decision makers at a dispensary to get on those shelves?
1: Great question. Um, and Part A of that is it goes, well, part A is if you have a partner in the market, yep. make sure you have a partner that, that first of all, lives and breathes your product. And secondly, has the, the, the connections already, the deeper connections, that's the easiest entree, right? So if my partner is producing for us in a market that we're, we're not, a lot of people know us, which luckily doesn't happen as much anymore, but you know, if they can be that, that warm entree and, and, uh, and then I can, you know, not me, but I, as the company can back that up with, you know, our content, our information, our education, you know, store visits, you know, really reinforce that brand with the with the store level. That's a great way to do it. Now, if you have a part, if you're managing your own process in a given market, let's say you own the license, and the facility, and your new brand launching, <coughs> you know, I think uh, traditional CPG marketers would probably think in terms of um, spending dollars on consumer campaigns. And reaching that end user consumer. Yep. That's still a little bit elusive. And of course, MediaGel is, is really helping to try to try to solve some of those problems about how to reach that consumer and, and drive them into the store. But if you're a brand in particular, that can be a little bit challenging and also extremely costly, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, getting to the end user consumer and driving traffic that way can be tough. I think um, back to the idea of being authentic, if you can be really authentic. If you're differentiated, if you understand the, the the market itself and you understand where the gaps are and you can help fill those gaps, um, that's a big piece of, of, of getting on the shelf. Um, and then I think it's repetition. I mean, I see you know us and other companies that are just constantly in market, in stores, reinforcing the brand, reinforcing our uh, relationships. And, and that's kind of what you have to do. You have to be able to hit that wall multiple times before you break through. And that just requires patience. And back to the earlier point about cash it requires uh you know a long fuse right so that you can make sure it happens
0: yeah you need to to, to invest in yeah those vendor days those relationships those marketing materials for the bud tenders they're on your front lines they're really pushing your product right so you have to get them uh, to be your advocates uh what type of growth goals or milestones should a brand you know set to keep them on track
1: yeah. And I think, you know, that it's really an individualized question on a, yeah. on a per company basis. Like I mentioned earlier, it depends upon, you know, what your yeah. uh, what your goals are. I mean, for us, you know, we have, we're, we're in the process of developing some OKRs right now, some objectives and key results around what does that look like? What do we want out of each market? And in some cases, maybe it's top line. In other cases, it's bottom line, um, you know, in terms of profitability in a given market. And in some cases, it's simply how many storefronts are we in, right? But setting that intention and saying, this is our goal, did we reach it? Great point, critically important for brands. Because if you just go into a market and say, well, we're in a new market now, yeah. how do you know if you're succeeding, right? Is, I mean, and, and and it's not the same for everybody, right? It depends upon the company. I know a lot of companies are really focused on top line because they're publicly traded or they want to be acquired and they want to really grow that top line. That's great. I'm not you know disparaging that. Now for Wana, it's about profitability, making sure that we're, we're uh, using our dollars wisely and being profitable in a given market. And it's also, uh, you know, a little bit about how, what's the impact we can have in the community, not just as it relates to cannabis, but more broadly, do we have opportunities to really support our partner in that community through our CSR efforts and other
0: things that we do in our markets? Thank you for that, Joe. We have uh, some questions from the audience here. What's your thoughts on entering uh, Europe and South American markets?
1: Great question, and really excited at some point to be able to do that. I'm hearing that um, potentially Colombia is looking, and I'm I'm speaking about this from a water perspective, um, which edibles are not at this point, um, to my knowledge at least, allowed in any South American or European markets. But we are hearing that Colombia is either in the process of or has already um, put out some, some regs that relate to edibles, so that's that's potentially possible. Um, but, you know, as far as Europe goes, it's still a little bit off limits for edibles companies, but I think that that is, um, a huge opportunity, but I think where people sometimes get, I'll say tripped up is that we still have so much to do here in the, in the U S or North America, at least now between Canada and the U S that you also need to look at that and say, okay, what's it going to cost me to figure out a completely different country, different regulations, different economics, different culture, uh, and what's it going to cost me to do that versus what are my opportunities here in the States? So it's a bright, shiny object. And I think Europe and South America are, are wonderful opportunities down the road. But I think for many companies, there's so much still left to be done here that it may not make financial sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's just pl- planning when the timing is right. Thank you, Aaron Gorman, for that question. Uh, I have another question from Brian Passan. Um, Oh, no, no, can, I can't do that question. Man. No, no, all right. <laughs> Hopefully, Brian was laughing at that. Okay, go ahead. Uh, what can or you know should marketing uh, do for cannabis brand to keep it moving off the shelves without heavily discounting during the difficult times when it seems like everyone is diminishing, diminishing their brand value by offering steep and consistent discounts to move product?
1: Brian, I'll, I'll send you a coffee for that softball later, but
0: uh,
1: <laughs> you know, discounting is. <sighs> It's a huge problem that we're, that we're trying to kind of, you know, figure out, right? We're scratching our heads on this because discounting, it helps the consumer. Okay. So don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there's not a benefit to anybody, but it means, you know, lower top line revenue for the the dispensaries. It means pricing compression for the brands and it, it is also like a disease it's insidious. And when, you know, dispensary across the street starts discounting, then that the other dispensary has to start discounting, then they go to the brands and say, you need to start discounting. And it spreads, right, like wildfire. And so all of a sudden, if everyone's leading with price, what are you going to do, you're going to train the consumer to think price only. And yeah. I think, you know, for most industries, for most other CPG uh, uh, type models and retail models, I can't think of another one where it's entirely based on discounting, even let's say clothing, right? You have certain retailers like Ross or, you know, Nordstrom Rack or whatever that are focused on on that discounting, right? And, and the consumer knows that. And that's where they go if they want something discounted. But in the normal retail environment, they get all kinds of cues to say like, oh, I like the the packaging, the design on that one. I'm willing to pay premium price. Or, oh, premium price means it's a better product. Or, oh, it has differentiated technology, so the price is different. We hear so often from dispensaries that they, they want to just like, Oh, it's a gummy, so we're going to price all gummies at fifteen dollars. That makes no sense in any other industry. So why do we do it in ours? And they may want to discount on top of that, and start driving traffic by offering two for ones left and right. That is going to be a significant problem for this industry. It's going to continue to be. It already is. Sorry, it's going to continue to be a significant problem in this industry. And for wanna, it's a, it's a, it's a real uh, dance that we have to do because. We are, we are a premium brand and a premium product, and we invest a ton of money and time into R&D, into the quality of the ingredients, using organic tapioca and using our Azuka partners, uh, their technology for the fast acting, so we have an actual fast acting product versus just saying it's fast acting. And, and so we, I think, deserve and, and want a premium for that because we're investing in that, right? And we want to yep. be able to pass it along to consumer. And by the way, guess what? There are consumers who are willing to pay for that. They, yeah, exactly. they want they want differentiated products, right? So it's a real mess that we're we're in right now. And I think for brands, it you know I think brands, um, particularly the retail side of things, they don't always think about the fact that if you are always on sale, then you become that you're a discounter. You're not a premium yeah. anymore because you're a discounter. That's what you do. So it's a um, it's a it's a point differentiation differentiation from up uh, for us. But it is a never ending battle to stay on top of that.
0: Yeah. Uh, can you? establish like an MSRP and then enforce that across retail locations? Is that no, not possible in this industry?
1: (laughs) No, it's not. I mean, everything, you know, even like the simplest thing of saying, okay, if we're going to discount something, we're going to, you know, we're going to give you a dollar off a wholesale. And as a result, we expect you to pass it along to the consumer. I I don't know the percentages, but I'm just going to guess, you know, 50% of, of retailers just pocket that margin because it's, you know, between 280E and everything else every dollar they can get to help you know help with that bottom line they're going to take right so the consumer doesn't even sometimes see when we if we are to discount they don't even get to see the discount so that's an even a different layer but enforcing an msrp is is virtually impossible at
0: this yeah. point what about uh, you know really choosing your partners wisely on the retail side you know like maybe going on like a co-op a co-marketing campaigns where you're splitting the marketing costs to get water in these brands to, you know, to get them on the shelf. And you're, you're supportive the education. You're putting your money, your marketing dollars behind it. And you expect certain level of, you know, price, price modeling, uh, in return. Mm
1: And, and, and that is, um, that's a great Avenue. And for us, you know, we, we obviously, um, feel like we've built a pretty good brand. And, and so, you know, the co-marketing is a, a great way to introduce a partnership with, with a, uh, uh, dispensary with a retail partner. Um, some partners are up for that. Some partners have the resources and can join you in that. Others can't. Um, and then you know, I think in some markets, it's uh, those retail partners look only as far as slotting fees and say, "Well, if you want to be on our shelf, here's here's the slotting fee." You now you can only do that so many times, right? You can't you can't give five thousand dollars to every dispensary every month to be on their shelves. So it, there is a there is a fine line between what's co marketing and what's strictly paying to be on somebody's shelf, yeah. and sometimes those are the dances we have to have. And, and honestly, as a brand, you have to be, you have to be willing to walk away. I mean, that's true for negotiations in general. Um, you always have to, if you're going to negotiate hard, you got to be able to be willing to walk away from it. Right. And, and just know that going into it. So there are some dispensaries where we just say, we, we can't do that. We, we, we can't, you know, we just can't do it. And so, you know, we stay true to our brand and we try and stay on top of that, but it's uh, it's a challenge. I think marketing is a great tool. Um, And we use it quite a bit, but there are also others where it just doesn't work.
0: Yeah. Yeah, And Brian says, uh, yeah, stay true to your value prop. And, you know, that's, it's the same thing for retailers. Like as a retailer, you should know where you stand in the market. Like, are you a value retail shop? Do you always need to offer discounts? Because that's what your consumers expect. Or are you differentiating yourselves? Are you, you know, higher customer service, more, you know, faster delivery times, uh, you have maybe exclusivity with some type some brands that you can offer. So there's different ways. Like, do you focus on, uh, we have a partner up in, uh, the Bay area is like, they focus heavy on drinks, especially for summer. Like they have mm-hmm. the biggest catalog of drinks. You know, how do you optimize your catalog to, to make sure it's in line with the consumer demand? Like there's all these things that, um, you can do to make ensure that you're, you're not racing to the bottom. Right. Cause then there's no margins for anyone. So. <laughs>
1: So all of those are good examples of value prop to the consumer that you as the retailer should expect to see some premium or some lift from, right? But the problem, that I think what happens is that during good times when people are buying, um, I think uh, it's easier for a dispensary to say, well, this is is how we're going to treat the customer and this is how we're going to create our value proposition. The second that things start to get a little bit challenging, the easiest answer for them is to say, well, we'll just cut pricing. Yep. Cut pricing, drive more traffic. Ninety-nine times out of a hundred, that's what's going to happen. And so back to Brian's point about staying true to your value prop, that's where that's where the rubber meets the road, right? Do you do you stay true to that value prop or do you do you cave and say, okay, well, we're just gonna cut prices and, and drive traffic?
0: Yeah. And just working with Washington State for going on like seven years now, like this was the talk, you know, long time ago. And you know, now that market you know, every, I mean, I uh, have some partners up there. It's like uh, 30, 40% of their transactions have to have a discount. <laughs> it's, it's been decimated. We're yeah. not
1: in, we're not in Washington
0: right now. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, yeah. So it's things to think about as a retailer and, you know, really uh, hold your brand strong and, and stay true to that value prop uh, on the, on the brand side.
1: And, and have confidence that the consumer is smart enough to know what, value you're offering and to be willing to pay an extra dollar or two for it here and, you know here and there. Not all consumers, right? There's that yeah. consumer that wants to shop at Ross, but there's also the consumer that wants to shop not at the rack, but at Nordstrom. So yeah, you know, just think about where you
0: are. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh well let's talk about you know the different markets. So like say you're a big brand in New York City and you want to expand in Southern California. Like how would a you know how should a brand go about tailoring the overall marketing messaging to fit the fit the new market um,
1: that is a probably a culmination of a lot of things we've been talking about so yeah. first of all study study the market understand you know w- what the market is because to the point I mean whether it's california to New York or New York to California east Coast west coast we we know that's been a, a long-standing <laughs> feud right so yeah they're not they're not the same markets they don't consume the same it, everything from, you know, what do they consume? So, you know, flour flour being a, in New York, being pretty flour heavy delivery being entrenched in, in New York. I mean, yep. we all know the, the size of the illicit market in New York. I mean, I don't know the exact size of it, but it's, it's, a, it's, you know, large Huge. Illicit and, and so, you know, what, how have you tailored your processes to adapt to that in New York? And does that fit in California? So California, potentially, you have direct consumer opportunities, right? Yep. That you don't have in other markets, and certainly don't have currently in New York. Um, so how how can you leverage that to reach the, a different set of consumers? And what's appealing to that consumer in a direct consumer model that isn't the same as maybe the retail model in New York? Um, two, think about <coughs> think about the um, the 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 positioning we were just talking about. So you know understand who you are as a brand, because when you go into Southern California, the competition is vast and heavy yes. and it's everywhere. Right. And so you really have to be able to say to the consumer that, he's that either shopping online or walking to a store, like, who am I to you? What, why do I matter as a brand to you? Um, third, I think for Southern California and Northern California, treating those as really separate States, almost having, um, one or two really key partners. I'm a big fan of like starting, um, starting small and growing little pockets of loyalty right versus going into southern california saying we're going to cover everything right well that's that is challenging not just because of the geography not just because it takes two hours to get from point a to point b in la but also just because they're so vastly different and they're small little communities right but if you can start with little ones and have successes and then have them grow together eventually you're going to, you're going to kind of connect all the dots, so to speak. And I think that's a, a, a good approach, at least, you know, from my perspective. So,
0: yeah, you know, find those partners and, and make sure that you're, yeah, I would, you know, on the marketing side, I look at it as the the spray and pray approach. Like, yeah, you can do that or you can choose specific markets. You know, there's other markets outside of LA, San Diego, Orange County, uh, Inland Empire, yeah, you know, there's all these different markets, Santa Cruz, like that are smaller and less competitive. Um, maybe they'll they'll be, you know they may be in better line with your your brand as well. Like if you have a yeah. can of drinks brand, like okay, well, should probably be near the beach, right? Like it's good, a good point, party, right? exactly.
1: And and it's you know it goes back to it too like setting your goals and your intention when you go to a market. <laughs> if if you think you're going to go into Southern California and you're going to dominate and be everywhere, okay, yeah. I mean sure, but you're going to have to spend a ton of money to do that. And you're probably not going to be successful for a while. So make sure you have those metrics set up that say we're either hitting goal or not. And we need to, we need to pivot if we're not.
0: Yeah. And you touched on this a little bit, uh, you know, how can a brand anticipate changing consumer preferences in a market? And, you know, like what should you watch out for? And is there a scenario like where you have pulled out of a state completely? So
1: so, 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 so I'm sorry, repeat that question to me.
0: Oh, uh, how can a cannabis brand anticipate changing consumer preferences in the market? So, yeah, that's. Well,
1: so, so that, you know, the, the answer to that is, I don't know that you can ever fully anticipate it, but I think having feet on the ground and also have or. Boots on the ground, as I guess is the the right expression. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I do that all the time. I mix up my metaphors. Uh, so having boots on the ground, and then also um, making sure you invest in data, right? So yep. uh, making sure that you know what is actually taking place, even if it's you know lagged, if it's you know sales data through you know the headsets, the BDSAs of the world, um, you know Alpine IQ. There, there's a, there's a number of really great platforms out there. Even if there's a little bit of lag time in that you can begin to analyze consumer trend and see like. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, you know, there's a flavor profile. Blueberry has, you know, just shot up over the last three months. We've seen, you know, twenty percent growth across, you know, all the the brands that have a blueberry flavored product. Well, maybe that's a preference change, right? Or a certain subcategory. You know, gummies have grown or they've shrunk. So I think really being in tune with that data, which when you know you and I first started on the on the adult use side of things, you know, that data didn't exist. So I, I, you know, for many many years we didn't have access to that data. So who knew, right? But now we do. And so you better avail yourself of that data if you want to stay on top of those market trends. And, you know, if you you, you got to be prepared to pivot. And you said earlier, you like, you know, make sure you've got uh, a contingency plan or in dollars to be able to support that. And, you know, if you're if you're if you're a chocolate company or a gummy company, you may not. I'm not suggesting that you want to you know watch those trends and say, well, gosh, you know, gummies went down 10 percent. Let's get into chocolate because it went up two percent. You know, that goes back to standing, you know, being the brand that you are and being true to that. But um, but, you know, flavor profiles or if you see live rosin, you know, you know, for example, that's partly why we launched a a live live rosin product here in Colorado and plan to to bring it to other markets. We knew that was an emerging trend and we really wanted to to be in front of it. So, um, you know, watching those trends and taking advantage of the upside is really where I think the benefit is. On the downside, you know, if you're, again, if you're a gummy company and you see the gummies are plummeting by 40%, uh, you know, maybe it's not the market for you and you should just cut your losses early and run. Yeah.
0: We do have a question from the audience, from Kevin McElwee. Uh, How do you manage packaging versions across SKUs and the different state regulations? Do you have a dynamic content creation tool to automate versioning? That's more <laughs> of the packaging side. <laughs>
1: No, Kevin. I mean, you know, like, uh, you know, my guess is that you you've got an involvement with uh, with that type of a tool, and uh, you know, we, we don't use that currently. And I think it's 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 potentially feasible, and it's probably just my education level about how that dynamic versioning you know can work. But um, but so many of them are so unique that we have you know we have in-house graphic design. Um, most of our most of our uh, creative content is done in house. Um, which, by the way, back to the to the brand piece, I think is important too. We don't use a ton of agencies. We do we use agencies when there's particular expertise, like video content or whatever that we don't have in house. But um, most of the brand stuff resides in house. Which, back to the labeling, means that you know if we have to make a, a sudden change to uh, packaging in a given market due to regulation, that you know my team is, is the one doing that. Now we also have a great partner with Calix who supports us on that. So we've gotten to a point where it was, it was so overwhelming. With so many markets to be able to make all of these little minor tweaks which for graphic designers out there and i am not one but i know that you know if you change a word it, it completely shift the entire die lines and you know everything else and it's not as easy as someone would think just to change a word right and usually by the way it's more than just a word but um so calyx helps us with a lot of that so we were able to offload on them as a partner and say can you help us you know just redesign the the, the language on the side panels but for the, for the primary, you know, for the front-facing brand pieces of this, um, we have a team that does it. And it, it varies by market. And, you know, it's black and white in Florida. And it's no fruit in Nevada. And it's, uh, you know, uh, cutting-edge, uh, latest, greatest here in Colorado. And so we end up with 15 different product, you know, well, across all SKUs, 15 different markets. And, you know, however many SKUs in each market, it's, it's right. challenging to stay on top of. And, and my, my team often pulls their hair
0: out in the results. <laughs> I'm sure I would do the same. <laughs> uh yeah, you know, when Wana enters a market, you know, what do you do to educate consumers, retailers, and bud tenders so they understand, you know, the brand inside and out?
1: Um, so that's a great question. And Wana is, you know, really focused on that education piece. And and education as it relates to the products, but of course, the the brand and the education kind of are one of the same, right? Because that's a big cornerstone of us for us as a brand. So um, we focus heavily on bud tender training. So we use a couple of key partners. Zoltrain is a a great one that we use pretty regularly. And so we're able to um, work with our our partners in an expansion market and say, Zoltrain is our platform. This is one of my goals, by the way, when I started the one I was to kind of standardize on some of this stuff. So when we go into a new market, we say, this is our training platform. We would like you guys to, you know, share this out with all the bud tenders and all the stores. And here's how it works. And it actually has been has been uh, uh, pretty good for us to be able to do that. So that's kind of the front line is that deeper education for the bud tenders. Um, we also um, use platforms like Leaf uh, Leaf VIP in Michigan. We're doing a pilot with them to understand can we get feedback from those bud tenders on the education and that kind of reinforces it as well. And then the consumer level. Everything from the, the way the education leads on our website to um, printed materials in the store. Uh, you know, our, We just launched um, our uh, live Rosin Gummies as I mentioned earlier here in Colorado. And we, we used a QR code to link to um, some, um, some AR content. So when you use your phone and you, uh, you hover over the, the QR code, I thought, yeah, I do have one right here. Um, you hover over the QR code, Uh, It brings up a completely interactive experience on your phone that provides a lot of education. It's fun, but it also provides a lot of education about the product. So every touch point that we have with the consumer, the bud tender leads with education that becomes part of the brand as far as, you know, our our brand positioning within a given market. Education is important to us.
0: Yeah, I'm actually going to post that here uh, in the Zoom chat. So Soul Train. Yeah, I've seen. Seeing uh, that a lot, actually, it's been really helpful for some of our campaigns, you know, impre- and in increasing the conversion rate in some of those landing pages, uh, ensuring that the education is there and not sending people just to a, a shopping cart, you know, just the, you know, one paragraph about the <laughs> product with one picture, like there, there's right. a lot more to it than that, right?
1: Yeah. And, and, and mm. it's a disservice to the consumer in some markets because going back to Florida, like we're not even allowed to provide you know certain education certain pieces about you know our our products are you know gluten free or this product is intended for sleep there are markets where we're not allowed to say that so there's there is um it's really important that we are able to communicate the education at least to the butt tender so they can get that down to the consumer in the store
0: yeah and i've heard you speak a, a lot about community initiatives um, can you talk a little bit more about the importance of investing in CSR, uh, community social responsibility initiatives and how to incorporate them into your business model? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. And thank you for that because it's, you know, CSR is, is really
1: important for us. And, yeah. um, one of the things that we did is, is we hired a director of CSR. So Carla, um, heads it up for us and she's awesome and, um, has, you know, many, many years of experience with it. So she is, uh, a one one woman show in terms of in each of our markets finding partners that align first of all with our with our missions and we have cornerstones we're still developing it a little bit to be honest because we've got a lot of exciting things coming up that I'll uh, hopefully be able to share like in August but you know we're we're putting a big big push behind our CSR initiatives she's leading that up but requires us to find nonprofit partners in each market but also make sure that we're clear on what it is that we're looking to support? Because you, I think you used the expression "spray and pray" earlier. I mean, it's kind of the same with CSR. You can, you can just say, "Well, we support you know all kinds of things," but you're you, you water down your message. You you lose a little bit of the the value of the volume of work that you can do within one or two particular categories. So, establishing what you stand for on the CSR side, um, putting your money where your mouth is, um, putting your team behind it so that you give opportunities whether it's in an expansion market or whether it's in your, your headquarter market but you know, giving your opportunities your employees rather opportunities to engage in those initiatives and whether that's through volunteering or to even suggest you know who we should be engaging with um, that's equally important and looking at partners um, looking at our partners and saying what are you doing in the market like we' we'll, we'll help support that but what you know what are your goals from a CSR uh, perspective in a market and if you don't have them, we'd like you to have them because that's what makes a good partner in in our opinion is a company that supports their communities. Um, But from a brand perspective, my goal for Juana on the CSR side is that we transcend cannabis. Like I'm so proud of some of the partnerships that Carla has been able to to develop for us where we are the first, right? So uh, Lee, women voters um, we did last year, we did a big push on vaccinations, which was by the way, back to something that brands stand for. It was very controversial. I can't even believe the number of negative uh, uh, posts and things we got when we were posting about these vaccine clinics that we did in conjunction with some of our pop ups—it uh, it was surprising to me. But but then again, I said, you know, first of all, I mean, some of them were ridiculous. Like, why are you forcing people to get a vaccine vaccination before they buy your products? Well, that's not what we're doing. We're we're saying, hey, there's a vaccine clinic right here if you'd like one as you're leaving or going into the dispensary. But that aside. Um, you know, the negative feedback was such that we had to say, okay, we hear you, we understand if, if that you know, alienates you from our brand, we're sorry, but this is what we stand for. And this is what we believe in. So, um, you know, that gives the the CSR work gives you an opportunity to really also create that identity and say, this is what we stand for.
0: Yeah, and that's more important now than ever. Yeah, I mean, we've either uh, in line with the brand values or the CEO behind it, whether it's like a someone uh very loud like elon musk or like bill gates or who you know whoever else like, <laughs> on the leader side right like it's well Nancy, in, yeah.
1: nancy's not loud yeah but she's but she's very specific about you know her intent to support our communities and yep. that top top to bottom is you know kind of how we approach it and it's, it's nancy's vision and and her her voice that we're
0: supporting yeah and before we pre-hop here i want to spend some time on marketing like what what do you what do you prioritize on the marketing side? Like, how are you, how are you ensuring that, uh, you know, consumers are aware of the brand and new markets? Uh, like what type of marketing campaigns do you invest in? Um, you know,
1: this is a, a funny question because you, yeah. know, you and I, uh, MediaGel and, and I have been talking about some of the, the challenges with display and programmatic Yep. Um, in that we have a hard time as a brand being able to tie back to actual conversions. Right. So be able to track it from, hey, I made this person aware of our product and our launch to they bought the product in a store. Um, yeah. Retailers, it's a little bit easier, but for us as a brand, it's challenging. So a little bit of that, right, to at least create broad awareness. I look at at uh, programmatic as a, an awareness tool for us. I'd like yeah. it to become a conversion tool, but for now, it's an awareness tool. Um, so some programmatic, um, obviously social, big part of, of our launches. However, Um, within certain platforms, I'm not telling you anything anyone doesn't know, like Instagram, Facebook, very challenging to to really get too much detail about where you buy the product, how much it costs, what's in it, you gotta be a little bit vague, but at least, you know, being able to say, hey, we're in uh, Arkansas now, you can buy our products, you know, just make the consumer broadly aware. Um, uh, I would say we also do um, a lot of our work through our CSR initiatives, like you mentioned, so we invest there. the biggest part of my budget, and I, I laugh at this sometimes. I tell people this, you know, regularly. It's swag. I mean, it's yeah. It, it is a never-ending beast. You know, I mentioned <laughs> Eric earlier. He calls me the chief swag officer um, because it's it, every market wants more. I mean, no matter how much I create, no matter how, or not I, how much we create. Uh, it, there's never enough. And, and, you know, that really helps to, to cement your brand and eyes, the bud tenders, as well as the consumers. We do a lot of events like the summer, we're doing our summer of quick tour. So those are all in person. We have a van, we do, you know, games and, you know, all kinds of good stuff at the, at the store level. Swag a big part of that. So, you know, that, that really drives a lot of our, our marketing initiatives.
0: Well, speaking of that, where's my swag, Joe?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you didn't get the box I sent you? That's weird. <laughs> I'll, I'll check the tracking number on that.
0: Yeah. Let me check my, let me check my mailbox here. (laughs) Uh, I've got a question from the audience here. Do you do, uh, this is from Rachel Smith. Do you, do your R and D and formulation teams work with your marketing team collaboratively to determine line extensions and new product offerings?
1: Great question. And yes, everything. So one of the, I think the strengths that we have at WANA is that we do everything pretty collaboratively. I, I just, before this call, we were on a, uh, we're, we're looking at um, redoing some of our, our packaging. And so we were looking at some different variations and versions and uh, there were multiple departments on that call. So it's not just marketing making that decision. It's a lot of people in the company. One small example, but back to the R and D side, uh, Mike Hennessy, who's our VP of innovation. Um, our teams are in, in constant and regular contact And Mike. You'll see Mike actually takes a big role in a lot of our video content. Mike is a, uh, uh just you know just such a great guy and so smart and knowledgeable and also comes across so well on video that we did a whole series of educational videos with mike so there's a very good relationship between r&d and marketing um you know i don't think there's ever been a case where uh well that's not true i was gonna say there's never been a case where we've like necessarily put the kibosh on something as marketing but in conversations we have about let's say new product lines um you know there may be an innovation or a reason that, that Mike and his team wanna do R&D on something. But when we look at it as a marketing team, we would say, okay, well, that's not really on brand and here's why, that's the kind of dialogue we have. Conversely, if we see trends, if we see things that we think might be an opportunity for us, we can go to Mike's team and say, hey, can we do a little research on this and see what the, the, the potential feasibility is of it. And the best time that it happens is when he comes across a technology or a, or a new innovation that, that they are really able to flesh out and then we bring in marketing. We say, "Okay, well, how do we communicate this? How do we productize it? How do we commercialize it?" That's where the that's where the 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 real coordination
0: comes. Thank you for that, Joe. Um, any other questions from the audience before we uh, kind of wrap up here? I'll give it a few more minutes. But um, so thank you again, Joe, for for joining us and sharing your insights. As I'm sure, our audience, uh, you know, here on Zoom and you know beyond on on LinkedIn, YouTube. And all the other social platforms uh, has enjoyed uh, has enjoyed all the information, and I'm going to post your LinkedIn here in the Zoom chat just so everyone has it. If you'd like to follow Joe on LinkedIn, uh, is there anything else you'd like to add, Joe, before we, we depart ways here uh, about Wana, about yourself, about the, you know the vision, the
1: mission going forward? Just um, you know, first of all, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And um, I always enjoy enjoy talking to you. So that's. That's first and foremost. Um, and also, I appreciate uh, the questions and the input um, from everybody. But uh, I think, you know, in terms of WANA, just um, remember that, you know, the brands can be more than just a product on the shelf at a price point and continue to, to build your brands, but also to respect other brands. Because, you know, I don't think the industry is going to grow appropriately if we, if we don't get a hold of, of the, this idea of, of discounting and, and, you know, just kind of going willy nilly wherever we can we have to be more thoughtful and methodical about what we do. we also have to think about our communities and that's just, you know, this is part and parcel of who we are as Lana. And, and I would encourage everyone to have that consideration as well. Yeah.
0: There's a lot of, a uh, lot of things going on in, in the world right now. So make sure you're intentional with uh, what, you know, whatever you support. Yeah. But, you know, Whatever, uh, whatever's in line with your brand and uh, you stay true to that. Yep. Exactly. <clears throat> well, thank you you again joe and uh thank you everyone for watching and, and once again this is the media gel podcast we cover everything on the marketing tech uh, advertising front and on the media gel side uh, you know we have a ad network of compliant advertising publishers we got seventy five thousand plus you know meme sites mainstream news sites dating gaming music streaming apps tv podcasts like you can advertise cannabis on all these and all these publishers welcome it so want to make sure that everyone's aware of that that there's you know there's more beyond uh, billboards and Wii maps nowadays. <clears throat> so have a wonderful uh, evening and uh, wonderful rest of the day and uh, happy Fourth of July weekend. Cheers. Thank you.